the national grid operator and tying in in many ways with the states, identifying these renewable energy zones mm. uh, around Australia where wind and solar capacity or resources is good and grid connection is you know, has great potential and then trying to get generators and developers to build in a in a cluster if you like around a particular connection rather than it just being so opportunistic which is straight which has been really the theme so far in mm. australia hello and welcome to energy unplugged by aurora this podcast features various experts from aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders policymakers and academics from all over the world It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora Australia. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion. We have Ian Learmonth in today, the CEO of Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the CEFC. Ian's had a lengthy career in energy and infrastructure across the globe. He spent time in Hong Kong, London, and Sydney. He spent a lot of his career at Macquarie, but also at NatWest and Social Ventures Australia. He's a product of the University of Queensland. Ian, welcome to Energy Unplugged. Delighted you can join us. Thanks, Hugo. Lovely to be here. Can we just start off at your career prior to the the CEFC? Um, You studied commerce and, and law, like a lot of promising young Australians. Um, How did you end up at Macquarie? What was it like when you joined uh, 20 or 30 years ago? And and what kept you there for for 20 years for your career? Yeah, thanks, Hugo. Um, Yes, um, as you say, commerce law, the combined degrees um, were very popular, still are. Uh, Australian universities uh, are great ones for for double degrees. And commerce law is is one of those, uh, you know, very popular double acts. Um, so, yes, did that in Queensland. Um, but interestingly enough, I, when I first um, uh, came to Sydney looking uh, for a job, and many uh, Brisbane uh, people of my era uh, came to Sydney to look for jobs in law or financial services because Sydney was the big smoke and Brisbane was still, uh, I guess, uh, you know, de- developing from its uh, you know, old country town reputation in the <clears throat> in the late seventies, I actually wanted to be I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a music lawyer. I'm very uh, one of my other um, passions uh, besides the clean energy sector was music. And um, I, I met one of the big Sydney music lawyers, and he said, uh, "You should think about uh, with your commerce degree." working for one of these new deregulated banks because the music industry is a really tough place to be and um, the uh, you know the clients uh, the you know the, the actual the, the talent themselves they uh, you know often can't pay the bills um, it's it's pretty tough so have a think about that and um, anyway I took his advice and one of those new uh, licensed Australian banks was Macquarie so yeah all those years ago in 1980, uh, 87, uh, I joined Macquarie um, and it was a very different time, of course. There was something like 420 people at Macquarie when I joined. I mean, I know that's hard to ma- imagine um, now that there are nearly 15,000 across the globe uh, of good Macquarie foot soldiers. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, back then, 400 and, and um 
you know, 420 or so people, uh, almost entirely in, uh, you know, one building in Sydney, 20 Bond Street. There were, you know, small offices in Sydney, in uh, sort of Melbourne and, and Brisbane, <clears throat> maybe one international office, be it London. Um, and it was a very different place, but it, but but even then had, uh, you know, a, a reputation for being innovative, um, hiring great people, um, and had you know the, the senior management had um, you know in, in incredible backgrounds of you know Harvard MBAs and those days probably less you know less common in Australia. So you know I was very attracted and interested um, to work in in uh, this new and exciting investment bank, being Macquarie. It was I guess probably was even referred to as a merchant bank back then, and and over the twenty two or so years, and I had two stints at Macquarie. I, I left Macquarie after nine or so years when I went to Hong Kong when I worked for NatWest for a couple of years and then I returned for another 13 or so both in Hong Kong and London and then back in Australia. Um, it was always evolving Macquarie. It was always, you know, kind of um, t- you know, taking on new frontiers and getting into new businesses. And, it, look, it gave... Uh, you know, the deal side of the business, the transactors, the originators out there uh, across the globe, people who were, you know, the fee uh, generators, it gave them a lot of latitude. It, you know, it was one that it said, you define the strategy, you go out and find all the deals, and we'll have a, a very tight risk framework back at um, HQ. And, um, you know, that was really the model. And I think that sense of entrepreneurship really kept me interested for all those years. Mm. And I mean, obviously, the CEFC is a very different type of institution with a different set of stakeholders. But is that what you took from your time at Macquarie there, that kind of entrepreneurialism? Or is it a a different, you know, set of lessons you took to the CEFC? It's interesting. Um, Look, I definitely do um, carry some of my old Macquarie characteristics and and try and instill them or work with them at the CFC. <clears throat> the thing, I guess one of the big differences, of course, um, with a, a, um, a statutory corporation, and that that's what the, uh, the CFC is, it's a, a federal uh, government corporation, is that the, that sort of very open strategy that Macquarie had to tackle different markets and different um, regions, countries around the world, um, is you don't quite have that there because, you know, the act that, that set up and, and in some ways regulates the CFC at a very high level says you must invest this $10 billion that you've got in Australia and you must invest it in renewable energy, energy efficiency or low emissions technology. So you've, you've got some constraints in that sense. You can't go and, uh, you know, buy the New Zealand equivalent or go off and do offshore wind farms in Taiwan, you've got to stick to Australia. But having said that, <clears throat> within um, with what, within the, the mandate that we've got, and it's a very broad and flexible one because we can do debt, we mm. can do equity, um, there is enormous room for an entrepreneurial approach. So, yeah, there's still, you know, and there's quite a few of the old Macquarie alumni floating around the CFC. Um, I, I do think we try and instill that uh, you know, those characteristics into the organisation. So perhaps now's a good time to turn to the CEFC itself. Um, 
a lot of our overseas listeners are in Europe and in the US, say. So just for them, could you perhaps talk about how the CEFC came about, what was the genesis of it, um, and perhaps using the UK's Green Investment Group as a comparison, kind of how does it differ from that or, or how is it similar in your view? Certainly. Um, so the CEFC came about about eight and a half years ago when um, the Labor government here in Australia were elected and they only, at the time, they had a sort of a minority position um, and they needed to form an alliance with the Greens to, to form a government. And the Greens, part of the, part of the conditions of that coalition, uh, one of them was to establish uh, a Green Bank and a very large and ambitious one, um, you know, relative to Australia's, I guess, scale. And, and, and that's how the CFC came about. And it was, it was um, established on the basis of $10 billion, so $10 billion Australian dollars, uh, would be available to invest, um, as I say, broadly across the clean energy sector in debt and equity, so not a grant maker. Um, but it had um, you know, a very broad mandate in the sense that it wasn't confined to particular technologies. Um, it was really just about um, a, a, you know, a, a, an investment vehicle that was there to, to kind of lead the market, invest in places where the private sector wasn't uh, confident enough or didn't understand a particular technology or didn't feel it was partic- uh, sufficiently developed. So it was filling gaps in the market. It was also established to try and crowd in private sector capital. So, um, you know, we, we, I guess we're every time we're, we're going into these transactions in the first wave and we've been at the first wave of grid-scale PV and um, even even the wind market and batteries and and so on. We're trying to draw in third-party money because having ten billion is great, but um, of course this is a multi tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars uh, challenge. So we have to, mm. of course, tap into the private sector. So crowding in was a very important part of it. Um, it's a perpetual. Uh, uh, fund or corporation, so it's 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 not it doesn't have a ten or fifteen year life, and then the money has to be ultimately recovered and returned to government. It's around as long as the CEFC Act is around, and um, the, the Green Investment Bank, as it was originally, and then it, it, it was sold, of course, to Macquarie Group, and has changed its name to Green Investment Group. Um, when it was established by the UK government, I think the intention was always that it would be ultimately sold to the private sector. Um, so I think that was one big difference. Um, it's predominantly the UK version has been more equity orientated. Um, you know, we're about 80% debt, 20% equity. I think the, 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 the GIG, as it's known now, was, was much more an equity Investor, and it had certain technologies that the government, the UK government, wanted to focus on, including you know waste to energy and so on. Um, so there were different characteristics, but in some ways, many similarities. It's two and a half. Well, it's two and a half billion pounds, so it was a large amount of money, and it was there to to, to sort of you know break down barriers of investment into this sector. And it you know it's done offshore wind, and it's done you know waste to energy. And, and so on. So, um, and we have we, we have a great relationship 
with those guys. We talk regularly. Um, we represent, you know, represented respective conferences uh, together, uh, know them well. And, you know, I guess being an ex-Macquarie London person, I, I'm very well known to the, the Macquarie executives who were part of the acquisition uh, deal, who are now leaders in that area. So lots of similarities uh, in a way. But, yes, we're, um, you know, we will continue to be owned by the uh, the Commonwealth Government here in Australia until there's some uh, major change in plan. Yeah, and you were kind of getting into that in terms of crowding in, and, and I was reading the um, uh, uh, annual report where the CSC has actually exceeded its goal in terms of attracting relatively more private capital uh, for each dollar it puts into a project, I think three to one against a target of two to one. H- how do you think about and manage the inherent tension in a statutory organisation like the CEFC of investing in projects where you're confident you can generate a return versus not crowding out private sector debt. Um, and you've obviously got a terrific team that looks in detail at these business cases. Um, but but how do you kind of think about that? How do you stay at the kind of bleeding edge of new technologies and, um, and, and areas? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it's not always straightforward. And the dynamic can change over the course of, of the transaction. You know, we can um, support a new technology in Australia like waste to energy or um, the early days of when we were financing grid scale solar and, and, and the project may not have had any offtake agreement for its, for its power. So it was very difficult for banks to come into those sorts of deals. Um, and, you know, you want to support them. You want to bring uh, the price of, of the technologies down. You want to build up the supply chains. And then, uh, you know, contracting might come along even in the course of, um, uh, the, you know, the 18 months of, of getting the final planning approvals and so on. And then there's, a, you know, a bit of a question. Do you, do you stay in? Do you, are, you, are you giving confidence to the incoming bank? So, therefore, you should stay in. So, it's really a question of judgment. And I think we've got it right. Uh, most, if not, you know, I'd like to say all of the time. I mean, I'm sure, um, you know, there'd be people who might look at the occasional uh, club deal that we've been in or syndicated facility that we, you know, we, we might have stayed in and thought, you know, why, why, are they, why are they still there? But we'd always have very, um, you know, I would, I'm very, you know, I like to be very strict on this point and the team are, are very good about it. But, um, you know, we, we're always there for a reason. You know, we, we've... We're giving other investors that confidence, and that's across a range of different things. We've got a clean tech business, and 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 you know we'll support these early stage Australian technology companies, and and I think that that helps others come in, even though you know we're, we're drawing in other investors. But um, but yeah, look, it comes down to uh, weighing up all those factors, and if people pipe up, if banks. Uh, you know, get on the phone to to the CFC or someone and, and, and complain. We take that very seriously. But in my time, and I've been the uh, chief executive officer at the CFC for about three and a half years now, um, you know, almost no uh, you know complaints from from the banking community. So I think we you know we're doing a pretty reasonable job. Mm. And so in terms of areas of focus for the CFC moving forward, and again for our overseas listeners. Renewables have, you know, in a remarkably short space of time, as in many places of the world, got very cost competitive. Um, you know, 
you hear Australian solar being delivered at 40 to 45 Aussie dollars and, and onshore wind not dissimilarly because of the excellent solar and wind resources in, in mainland Australia. You've also got then state governments stepping in to provide various subsidy schemes for renewables. So it feels like that is a, you know, kind of maturing uh, or, or mature space in the market. Uh, the CEFC focusing now on different technology classes, but also uh, has, has got a kind of new part of its mandate in terms of the grid reliability fund. What technologies are you guys focusing on over the next five or so years? Um, could you kind of step us through the, the major ones? Certainly. And look, as you say, um, <clears throat> we were over the last few years very actively involved in supporting the growth and increasing maturity of the um, you know, solar PV and, and the wind market here in Australia. And um, now we, you know, we're kind of moving on to that, that next frontier, that next stage, which of course is storage. And um, you know, we've been involved in both uh, supporting household storage and the proliferation of, of that uptake across Australia. Australia, of course, has an extraordinary number of people who have rooftop solar. So if we can add batteries to the rooftop solar, there's you know, an incredibly powerful story there. Um, but also grid-scale batteries that are coming into the, you know, Australia's uh, electricity grid. And we're involved in the first project financing of, of a grid-scale battery uh, here in, in, in South Australia, in fact, with, which was the Tesla Big Battery at Hornsdale. And, um, you know, that was a 50% increase in the capacity of that, of that battery. And we have a number of large-scale battery projects in our pipeline, probably got ones that we'll announce early in the new year. Um, so so there's, there's large-scale um, storage and pump storage. We're also working on those projects. So there's both the battery end and then, um, you know, Australia, of course, is trying to get up six to eight hour, you know, much longer and larger scale storage through, um, you know, through hydropower. Um, and so that's that's part of what we're focused on. And then, as you say, um, working and using our capital to improve the reliability of the grid because the Australian grid was not built for a distributed energy resource. It was built around coal-fired power stations. And the uh, there's a real catch-up in uh, going on here in this country where uh, there's been all the solar and wind that's been built out at a rapid rate. And, uh, you know, the grid's sort of catching up with that. And so Australian, uh, you know, the federal government has is planning to give us a further billion dollars to, to um, invest in grid reliability um, and security. Just to jump uh, in there, Ian, mm. I, I think that is, you know, when I look at where Australia sits in the kind of energy transition, you know, some areas it's potentially lagging a, a little bit, but those grid issues, I think, are where it's at the absolute kind of bleeding edge, both in terms of some of the issues that are coming up in terms of system strength from a long, thin grid, but then also some of the solutions that are emerging um, both technology and kind of market-based solutions. Um, and the grid modelling we do in Australia, we're, we're absolutely starting to apply to European markets where it hasn't become an issue yet, but may well do as, as you're losing inertia 
on the system with more and more renewables entering. So I think Australia is genuinely quite unique in, in the role the grid is playing in the energy transition. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a few, a couple of unique aspects to, to Australia. There's the, this grid issue. Um, and as I say, we, you know, we're trying to put capital. We've just announced our first uh, investment in the grid. So that's a, um, a connection to the Snowy 2.0 project, which is mm. a government-owned uh, 2,000 megawatt pump storage project. So we're, we're investing in some unregulated transmission to help support that particular project, but we've got lots of others in the making, um, in, in interconnection across states in Australia, and even potentially, uh, you know, across the Bass Strait, which links uh, Tasmania to Victoria. So there are big plans across the country to improve the situation with the grid, but it takes time, and it obviously takes a huge capital investment. And we, you know, we'll be part of that solution. But you know, equally, there's, um, you know, there's the regulatory framework that'll need to be uh, upgraded and improved to account for this. And you know, this, as well as the Commonwealth government, various state governments in Australia have got their own kind of plans and ambitions around um, improving the grid. The other areas I mentioned, Hugo, which the, the government, the federal government, has directed us to turn our attention to. Um, because they've set up their own, what they, what they call their technology roadmap, mm. um, as well as um, large-scale storage, uh, they have direct us, directed us to invest in hydrogen. Of course, you know, hearing an enormous amount about hydrogen across the globe. Australia wants to be part of, uh, you know, part of the hydrogen story. In clean hydrogen, we've, we've dedicated or allocated $300 million of our portfolio to projects in that regard. So we've got the first wave of hydrogen projects here in Australia, uh, you know, electrolyzer as driven by renewable energy, in some cases, putting that hydrogen into the gas system. So hydrogen's an area, um, working with industry to produce green steel and green aluminium. Mm -hmm. uh, so industry, of course, is a, is, a, is a big emitter if we can address some aspects of that. Um, and you know, carbon capture and storage, uh, the government would like to, to build out here in Australia. We haven't been able to do that to date because our act precludes us from doing it, but I think the government has, has plans to remove that. Um, so there's some of the other technologies that we, um, you know, that we are focusing on as well. Could maybe just to double click on storage because, you know, as you know, Aurora does a lot of work in this space you know, in, in the States, in, in Europe and Australia as well. Storage investment cases are often complex. You know, they rely on intraday price volatility. Steel ancillary markets drive, you know, a significant proportion of the value. So AEMO, Australia's system operator, produces what's called an integrated system plan. They identify, you know, somewhere around 10 to 12 gigawatts of, of storage requirement through the 2030s. So there's clearly a system need there and Aurora's modelling comes to not dissimilar conclusions. So I think everyone understands the system need, but getting comfortable on individual investment cases is challenging. How does the CEFC think through the economics of storage on, on any given project, I suppose? Yeah, it's... And you're right, it, it, it is a challenge. You've, you know, you've got to look at, like all good project financiers um, in this case, and they invariably 
have been project finance opportunities? What are the projected cash flows over the next 10 or 15 years for, mm. the, you know, for, for that storage uh, enterprise? And, um, you know, what views are you taking on the volatility of power prices to, to, to make that one of the revenue streams? And what other revenue streams are available around frequency control? And, and those frequency control markets are constantly changing in mm. Australia, particularly as, um, uh, you know, the rules will change over time and as more um, batteries come into the system, they will potentially erode the value of, of the, you know, the previous um, battery that was installed. Mm. So there's a lot of assumptions that are, are be, you, you need to make over a significant period of time. So we've, we've spent a lot of time and we, you know, we're working with your team, um, Hugo, it's been hugely helpful. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and, and, and most of that, the first wave of large-scale batteries in Australia have also had some kind of contractual support mm. from potentially a state government to take a bit of the sting out of the, the decision that you've got to make around those cash flows. But, um, you know, I suspect as prices come down for lithium-ion batteries, um, government support will want to step back and hope that investors and financiers are going to be able to take a view on um, projected cash flows and revenue streams coming from. So we're sort of seeing our first wave of, of ones where they are coming without a grant or government support. And, and that's where we're really having to, you know, think very long and hard about how we structure the, the, the debt. Is it, is mm. it, you know, we, we get paid down as quickly as possible in the, in the more comfortable, early, visible three to five years and mm. take a bit more of a view on the distance. But, yeah, look, that is that is the big challenge with storage, no question. Yeah. You, you touched on state governments there and the various support they've provided. I mean, Australia, I think every market feels like its policy setup is in a unique state of flux because the energy transition is moving very quickly. But I genuinely think Australia is unique in how fast the policy announcements have come over the last 12 to 24 months. So again, for our overseas listeners, just as an example, uh, you've had a series of federal government announcements where they're looking to inject uh, more reliable capacity, dispatchable capacity into the market. The state governments have typically been more focused on renewable support, but you've then got this overarching pro uh, program that the Energy Security Board, the ESB, are running to look at post-2025 market reforms in a more integrated, holistic way. Um, so New South Wales, just by itself, has introduced almost a kind of UK-style um, EMR set of reforms where it's support for renewables through underwriting, support for dispatchable capacity, and then additional transmission being built. So in, in short, a huge amount going on. As kind of as an... Uh, you know, pr project uh, financier, how do you think and quantify all these policy risks and um, how does that factor into your, your decision-making, I, I suppose? Yeah, look, it, it's, it, it's an interesting um, landscape. As you say, we, you know, we balance the, you know, the federal government's policies and their direction with the, the very hands-on role that the states are playing and uh, you know we're obviously very pleased that New South Wales has announced what is up to a 30 billion dollar investment mm. in the uh, electricity infrastructure system um, and you know that's 12 gigawatts of 
of, of um, uh, renewable energy to be built over over the coming years and two gigawatts of storage. So, so you know, we we welcome all of that, um, but we I guess we you know once again we kind of come back to it does. Do, do the deals that we that uh, we then see that come out of it, and that you'll know, be the the various developers and sponsors that will will, will tap into the, you know these initiatives. They'll come to us, and we'll we'll kind of look at them and and and, and you know we'll just evaluate each of them on their merits. Do they need the CEFC? Are they mm. fully contracted with the state government? And they're you know they're trying to just get some good pricing or some long tenor out of the debt when they really could, could be banked far uh, just as easily with the private sector banks. So so we you know we 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 sort of still look at the deals as as they come up. Um, we we stay very close, to, of course, to the regulatory environment, and you know we 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 talk actively with the. The rule makers and the and the and, and, and the evaluators and the grid operator AEMO, as you say, because you know when you're involved in transmission transactions, large scale pump mm. storage, the policy decisions you can often live and die by. Um, but yeah, look, it's 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 a fascinating time. Uh, you know, we're kind of going into that now second wave of build out of renewables. And um, but it's, I think it's being you know it's more thoughtful. It's it's you know the, the the necessary strategy around the grid, and particularly in something that's probably interesting for your listeners, Hugo is is um, you know the the national grid operator and tying in, in in many ways with the states identifying identifying these renewable energy zones mm. uh, around Australia where you know wind and solar capacity or resources is good, and grid connection is is is, is you know, has great potential and then trying to get generators and developers to build in a in a cluster, if you like, around a particular connection rather than it just being so opportunistic, which is straight which has been really the theme so far in mm. Australia. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because I haven't kind of followed the the legislation uh, super closely, but the federal government was talking at least about changing the CEFC's remit to include Kind of fast ramping uh, gas gas generation. Um, this has obviously become a pretty contentious topic. Y- you know, to some degree, you had debates about the role of coal moving forward, but that seems to be kind of relatively more settled. And now it's about the role of of gas. And Australia's chief scientist Al- Alan Finkel um, has has received some criticism for saying there is a role for for gas over the next ten to twenty years. I think his comments were taken a little bit out of context. He was trying to make, I think, a more subtle point around the need for backup generation for when wind and solar output is low, uh, not suggesting there are significant volumes of new gas, but that um, it, it was important to think about system security and more weather-dependent systems. How do you think through the role of gas in Oz's energy transition? Um, and, and, you know, without kind of commenting on the debate that's happening in Australia, do you think there's a kind of way to bring together the warring sides to get to a, a sensible uh, outcome? Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, you know, you, I guess you know, Alan Finkel and probably the AEMO, um, you know, the grid operator's uh, blueprint for the next 20 years, what we call the integrated system plan, um, it, it, it is fair to say that doesn't doesn't have... Um, 
an increase uh, in its base case doesn't really have an increase capacity for, for gas in the system. That, of course, will be around for uh, a number of years because it's providing uh, you know, important firming um, capability uh, to the grid. And, um, yeah, so so we'll, I think we'll, well, gas is, without question, it's going to be around for some time in Australia. Um, and, you know, the, the big question is what's going to provide uh, the ongoing and increased firming need to, uh, you know, the big build-out of renewables that we're, we're talking about and, uh, you know, from particularly stimulated by some of the states uh, and so on. And, and part of that, of course, will, will be, Will be gas, but but equally, you know, the battery storage that we were talking about and pump storage when mm. Snowy 2.0, 2,000 gigawatts of large-scale storage comes on in about six or seven years. So, I think um, you know there's a lot there's a lot of other sources of firming coming into the system. Uh, we look, you know, it hasn't been a, an obvious place for us to play. Occasionally, we get let's say large wind operators. Um, you know, who, who come to us with proposals where they they might say, um, look, we can uh, build out all this additional wind or, or acquire additional wind farms and so on, um, and and we can service our customer base, as in sell firm, clean, green energy to them. But we need we we might need to to also invest in some gas peakers, for example. So mm. we, we've kind of been pragmatic and looked at a couple of those deals. Haven't done any 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 to date. Um, but where you know where gas can be used in firming and and unlock more renewables and provide a, you know, a firm, dispatchable, clean, green product, that's you know that's of great interest to us. Makes complete sense. Maybe just to wrap it up on Australia's energy system. Then, um, you, you know, Australia, like most jurisdictions, does have big vertically integrated utilities, which are colloquially referred to as as gen tailors. In Australia, um, they like a lot of vertically integrated utilities in the energy space. The energy transition has been challenging for them to negotiate in Australia. They have big coal plants, uh, uh, you know, th throughout the country that are increasingly having their economics eroded, particularly during the middle of the day when solar output is high. The duck curve is becoming increasingly apparent in in Australia. Also, challenges on the retail side from from kind of smaller, often green uh, startup, second tier energy retailers. Perhaps putting your kind of Macquarie hat back on, what do you see as the strategic options available to the gen tailors to help negotiate the energy trans transition and, and how can they adapt and kind of continue to, to thrive over the next 20 years? Yeah, look, I think they're, I mean, they're very conscious of where, they, where they're at. You know, they have, Huge franchises to protect. They have, um, you know, they have a, a, and they have differing blends of 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 generation capability. Um, but you know, they all have some component of of renewable energy in in their mix. Um, they are all acutely aware that in terms of new generation, that's going to be the cheapest. But they also, you know, they need to provide firm. A dispatchable power to their customer base, be it retail or CNI. Um, so you know, 
you know, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any magic answers for the, particularly the three big Gentiles in Australia. I always watch them with much interest and, you know, they're all um, very ably led and capable mm. uh, in, and and they you know they they know that the coal-fired power stations of course are uh, you know they're going to retire they want to stay relevant they want they want to be uh, you know the the, the the consumer particularly the retail consumer I think is increasingly looking for a clean energy solution mm. um, and so they you know they're making investments in some te- in technology so that they're not left behind. Um, you know, back to Australia's rooftop capability. I mean, 2.4 million rooftops in Australia mm. have solar on them, and therefore, uh, you know, people with and when batteries become cheaper, and at the moment, you know, battery uptake's been okay but quite limited because the paybacks mm. a bit too long for the average Australian household. But but once people kind of are starting to put in, uh, you know, batteries as uh, just you know, as a conventional thing to to do, and they and they're able to sell their power into the grid, and, uh, as well as generate it on their rooftop. Um, there's increasingly a worry for the big those big gentiles for their retail book of people just kind of disconnecting and going off grid. Um, so Australia's again at the bleeding edge of some of these issues, mm. and you know I think they're. All the big gentailers acutely aware of the direction the market's heading. Some of them are probably, uh, they're all approaching it a little bit differently, but I think um, they're wanting to make bets on the technology side as well. And, you know, we've, I've you know, seen some of those investments taking place. Um, so, uh, look, no magic answers uh, for any of them, but uh, you know, I don't, they're, they're certainly not, um, you know, going anywhere uh, soon, I think that you know their their fight to stay relevant will will continue for for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think AGL announced plans for something like eight hundred and fifty megawatts of of lithium ion batteries. So they're they're clearly trying to break into the space and 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 do innovative things. Um, and if if we could kind of draw to a little bit of a close, then so this is something that John Federson started doing, our our CEO, and I, I do quite like it. So I'm going to kind of give you a, a concept essentially um, and then ask you whether you think it's over or underrated by the kind of wider wider market or, or energy intelligentsia. I think the, the best word answers, the best answers here are typically one word, but maybe with an explaining sentence to, um, to clarify your views. So um, the role of markets in the energy transition, an over or underrated concept. Underrated concept. It at the end of the day is, you know, the lifeblood of uh, of these projects. So without the right price signals uh, being there in the market, nothing much is going to happen. Terrific. Um, the kind of value of individual corporations committing to net zero by twenty fifty over or underrated? Do you think? Possibly overrated it's yes extremely important and but uh at the end of the day i think large particularly listed companies uh keep an eye on the bottom line and those sort of um, projections you know can be uh managed if you like but still Mm. extremely important okay and then finally the likelihood of australia getting to a net zero power system by 2050 do you think over or underrated by 
by the domestic Aussie uh, market? I think, well, underrated in the sense that I'm extremely optimistic that, that, that we'll get there. Um, I think, uh, yeah, you know, I think we're decarbonising at such a rapid rate in the, um, in the energy sector. Um, and I think, um, you know, if any, if any sector is going to get to net zero uh, early, it's going to be, um, it's of course going to be the, uh, the electricity sector because so many of those other sectors are just so hard to, uh, to mm. obey, relatively speaking. Yeah. And then one final question. Is there anyone you read or listen to in the energy space that you can think consistently think is excellent, um, relevant to the private sector. Is is there anyone that that springs to mind? Look, I th- there are there are a lot of great uh, energy writers, energy wonks uh, in Australia. Um, the uh, Angela McDonald Smith, who's probably mm. the you know one of the kind of lead writers for the Australian Financial Review. Uh, I think you know always try and read. Her uh, her column has great insight. Been tracking it for years. Uh, very thoughtful, um, and uh, you know I think an, an important voice in the energy debate. Terrific. Well, Ian, thanks enormously for your time. We've covered a lot, I think, in about forty to forty-five minutes. Um, I know you're one of the busiest men in Australia's uh, energy space. We're very appreciative of your time. Thanks again, Hugo. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora Australia, talking to Ian Learmonth, CEO of Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.